All right, let me invite you to turn your Bibles to Matthew 18. I've been in ministry for, oh, 28 years in one form or another. And uh, the two questions I have gotten the most in those years, you know, over and over people ask the question. One is, what about the end times? <laughs> That's one of those questions you get a lot. When's Jesus coming back? Um, February something, I don't know. Um, not really. And uh, the other question that I get is about forgiveness. Not God's forgiveness of us, but our forgiveness of other people. Isn't that interesting? Because we recognize that is something that is very, very difficult for us to do. And in fact, the passage we're reading was prompted by a question about forgiveness. Uh, the Apostle Peter has been listening to Jesus talk, and, and uh, he says, uh, Lord, how often should I forgive my brother when he sins against me? Up to seven times? And I think he was being generous. And Jesus said, no, I tell you, 77 times. And so we're talking this morning about a very difficult calling in our lives, and that is the calling to forgive other people who have wronged us. So we read Matthew chapter 18, and uh, we'll start in verse 23. Therefore the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold, and his wife and children and all that he had in payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii, and seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, Pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also, my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. I had a young couple that I knew years ago, uh, Agatha and Nick, and uh, they had been dating for a little while, and they were in that kind of uh, part of the relationship where they figure out, uh, you know, people say the honeymoon's over uh, for the two of them, and so they were having some stress in their relationship, and he had said some things that might have been a little bit hurtful to Agatha, and so she was coming to me for advice, and I said, Agatha, look, I said, like everyone else, Nick is a sinner, and he is going to hurt you. Anybody you date is going to hurt you. Anybody you marry is going to hurt you, because they're all sinners, and they're going, that's what sinners do. So she left, and uh, hopefully I, I made a mark, you know, it's like preparing her for the realities, you know, all those teen movies she'd watched about dating, they weren't helping her. And uh, so I got a call about three hours later from Nick, and Nick said, Stephen, can I ask you a question? I said, yeah. He said, 
uh, I got a call from Agatha, and Agatha said that you told her that I was a sinner and I was going to hurt her. That's what she got out of the conversation. You know? Not everybody's a sinner, but Nick is a sinner and he's going to hurt me. And so she weaponized <laughs> the conversation I had with them to try to, uh, to stick it to Nick. And uh, they're not married. And, uh, <laughs> and uh, I forgot where I was going after I said that. Um, that's actually a reality that still stands for all of us, is everybody that we know is a sinner. And they're going to hurt us, and they have hurt us, and we're sinners, and we've hurt other people. And uh, the people around you are going to hurt you because they're all sinners. And Matthew 18 is all about sinners redeemed by grace, living in community with sinners saved by grace, and how we do that. And Jesus talks about the utter necessity of, of forgiveness in that community. He pulls no punches. He's very honest about the nature of sin and community and the required forgiveness because if you close yourself off from everyone who ever hurts you, you're going to live a very lonely life indeed. Some wonderful relationship in your life are, are going to be cut off that you should have forgiven and stayed in those relationships. And the punchline of the parable talks about the constant move towards peace and reconciliation with other people who have harmed us. People living in, who have been redeemed by grace, living in community, and that absolute requirement for forgiveness. So here's a thought I want to plug into your mind. I want, I want, if you take anything from this, I want it to be this. It's going to be repeated a few times. People who understand God's forgiveness of their sins deeply in the heart will forgive other people deeply from the heart. That's the gospel in us, impacting us, and lived out. That's what we're talking about this morning is forgiveness. Our forgiveness, and this is point one, our forgiveness is costly but free. So we read this in Matthew chapter 18, verse 24. When this king, the master, began to settle his accounts with his servants, the people working for him, uh, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. I'm going to find out just how much that is in just a moment. And then in verse 18, verse 27, and out of pity for him, because he couldn't pay it back, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. Now, I'm always looking for good illustrations to help us understand and wrap our minds around the forgiveness of God. This is, look no further than Matthew 18, because this is a great one. The servant owes the king, the master, uh, 10,000 talents. Now, there are different people who speculate about how much that actually was worth. The one that I, I see the most is this. One talent is not like a, it's not like a, you know, a penny or a quarter. It's not a coin. It's a, it's a unit of money. It basically is 20 years of salary, right? 20 years of salary. So he owed the king 10,000 talents. Now, I did the math in my head, and it was wrong, so I did it on a calculator. So this is what it amounts to. 200,000 years of salary he owed. 200,000 years of salary. And, you know, I just made it easy for me. Hopefully it makes it easy for you. Imagine you made $50,000 a year. That's $10 trillion in personal debt, right, that he has to pay off. $10 trillion in personal debt, 200,000 years worth of debt to pay off. He would never, ever be able to pay that off. And so out of pity, the king in the story uh, forgives that debt. And that's, he's, Jesus says, this is what the kingdom of heaven is like. Sin is like a huge debt one that we could never repay, but God in His grace cancels the whole debt, completely releasing us from its obligation. 
Now, the Bible talks in numerous places about, it gives us images about the forgiveness, it just being gone. So in Psalm 103, he says, as far as the east is from the west. I love that image because it's almost like a trick. If you can imagine a globe, if you start in the east and you start moving west, how long is it going to take you to get west? You'll never get west. It's always on the other side. You'll keep moving and moving and moving. So he says, as far as that is from the west, that's how far your sin has been removed. Micah chapter 7, verses 18 and 19 says that God has hurled all of our uh, sins into into the depths of the sea. Now, I know we, we're kind of like, well, you know, if you get a scuba tank out, you can go down and find. No, that's the image for them was you, once it's in the sea, it's never coming back. Isaiah chapter 43, God says, I blot out your transgression. So you can imagine him just smudging the paper so you can't read it anymore. The ledger that had your debt, it's gone. He says, I will remember your sins no more. Acts 319 He says, your sins may be wiped out like a dry erase board. There's not even any residue on it. Jeremiah 31, verse 34, he says, I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sins no more. So he's never bringing it up. It's never coming up ever, ever again. And so all of these images are meant to communicate one thing to us is that when God forgives our sins, they're really gone. They're just gone. He never holds them against us. They're gone. And this is what Charles Spurgeon says. He says, when God forgives, he forgives forever. Until God can change or lie, he will never bring to mind again the sin of that man who he has pardoned. So the full forever forgiveness of God means that all of our sins, not just the one you, that one you might be going to and say, I feel guilty for this, but all of our sins are forgiven. The past ones, the present struggles and the sins, the, the, tempta- the future temptations and struggles and failures. God forgives the person, the entirety of our lives, all of the $10 trillion debt, it's just completely forgiven. It's gone. It's buried. It's in the bottom of the ocean. It's never coming back. And that's awesome. That's fantastic. But if you're like me, you're thinking, uh, I, th- that's really abstract for me. $10 trillion in debt, that's just like ones and zeros on paper. I get somebody else to do my taxes for me. I don't even know what that means, right? That feels like high school calculus. And it's like, oh, there's some equation here that I'm never going to use. So it just feels abstract. So let me make it a little more... Uh, a little more uh, concrete for you, give you a way to think about it. When Rebecca and I were in uh, seminary, we were newlyweds, and uh, we got a job uh, house-sitting for some people for like uh, three months. It was fantastic. But our apartment was sitting empty. A friend of ours who worked with the ministry found out our house was sitting empty, and she said, hey, I've got some people who need a place to stay for the n- next couple of months. Could they stay in your place? And we're like, well, yeah, we're house-sitting this really nice place. They can use our apartment. And so after a month, we went and just kind of checked on things to see how things were. And they had done several thousand dollars worth of damage, just ruined. Remember back in the day before you had the, you know, the front-loading washer and things, you, had the, you just put it in the top and it had that agitator post that was coming up the middle of it, right? I don't know how this person did it, but had broken it off. And so there were these shards of plastic sticking up. Uh, somehow all of our, you know, we got these nice pots and pans for our wedding and they all got ruined. I don't know how she didn't burn down the apartment complex. It's just like, what in the world? So they couldn't pay. And so we, we ate the cost of that. Didn't take them to court, didn't do anything. It was just like we ate the cost of that. Now, as you, this is not a Stephen is a hero story because we had to work through a lot of stuff um, emotionally with that. But what it functionally meant for us in, in terms of that is we didn't just lose the washer. Like, that was ours. We had it. We had use of it. Now that's gone, right? So we no, we no longer have a washer. 
but we needed a washer. So we had to pay out of pocket to buy a new washer, right? So it, in some sense, it cost us double to do that. All the pots and pans that we had, well, we, we were in grad school. I didn't have money for that, so we just kind of, don't buy us. We have plenty of pots and pans now. We're okay. We're good. So we had to get rid of all of those and buy all new ones. So it doubly cost us. It cost what we had, and we had to give what we already, what was in our pockets to buy some new things, right? So when we start thinking about uh, God's forgiveness of us, it's not just, well, you know, let's erase a couple of zeros here, right? That's, that's cooking the books, right? God doesn't do that. There's actually a payment that has to be made, right? It, it's not just letting us go. There's a payment, right? And the Bible says this is what Jesus was doing 2,000 years ago on a cross outside of Jerusalem. He was making a payment. God didn't just erase it, right, and cook the books. He actually paid the debt that we owed. So when Jesus is on the cross, the Bible is very clear. It says, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sin and live for righteousness. Isaiah 53 says, but Jesus was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So forgiveness of us is costly. God doesn't just say, well, you know, we'll just let it all go. There actually has to be a replacement, a payment that is made, just like we had to do with the washroom, with the pans. He had to, a payment had to be made. So forgiveness is costly. It costs God a great deal. But forgiveness is also free. It's free for us, right? What is the bottom line of God's forgiveness? He has seen me at my worst, and he still loves me. He loves, his love for me was never earned and therefore can never be lost. And that's, this is when you know that you understand the forgiveness of Jesus, is you accept that forgiveness freely. Right? As you go back into this passage, it's, it's interesting <laughs> with this servant, is he finds out you know, there's a 10,000 talent debt that he owes that he can never pay back. And his first response is, oh, I'll pay it back. It's like, how? <laughs> how are you, 200,000 years? How are you going to pay this back? What makes you think you can do that? When will it be done? And in this, you get a, an inkling of how out of touch with reality he is right? The, how much the debt actually is. I, I'll pay it back. I can do that. And you also see into kind of the legalistic heart is the person who says, I can pay this. I can do this. I'll, I'll pay you back to God. And the reality is, is you can't. When? How? It's a, it is a $10 trillion debt. How are you going to pay this back if God forgives you? You're not, not going to pay this back at all. But we live that way, and we talk that way, and sometimes we drive ourselves in the Christian life that way. I knew I had a, a guy I knew who was a preacher, and uh, he really wanted people to come to faith in Jesus Christ. And he preached that a lot, but it was an interesting, interesting thing listening to him preach because he wanted to preach the grace of God, and he wanted to preach the forgiveness of God, but he could never really quite get there. So a lot of his sermons ended up being something like this. is like, you can come to Jesus and be saved, and do you see how much Jesus did for you and now what are you doing for Jesus? Have you done this enough? Have you done this enough? Have you done this and this and this and this and this? And are you doing this enough? And, and so you're sitting there thinking, am I really forgiven or is there some debt that I still have to pay? And so that's the way most of us approach this is, yeah, God has done this, but I'm making it up to him.
but you can't make it up to him. It's a $10 trillion debt, 200,000 years, and that's just an image of eternity, right? You can't pay it. And he says Jesus has paid it all fully. And so what does that mean? Well, have you done this enough? No, I haven't. I haven't done any of it enough. And that's the point, is Jesus is enough for me. Jesus has done it. Uh, I have delighted in his love and reveled in his forgiveness. I've stopped pretending that I can pay it back. I believe him when he says that I can't and don't have to pay it back, but can simply accept it as a free gift. I've been simultaneously humbled in myself and overwhelmed with his loving generosity, and that has changed everything about me. Right? It changes us. And that's God's forgiveness. But that's not really what the parable is about. It's a great illustration, isn't it? He just walks us right through. It's like there's a debt you couldn't pay. Jesus has paid it for you. You're fully and completely forgiven. You don't have to worry. That debt is taken care of. But that's not what he's talking about. What he's talking about is us doing that with other people, is forgiving them their debt towards us. This is what he says. He says our forgiveness of others is commanded, but it's also uncoerced. Matthew 18, he says, So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. That's what he says. And that's why this passage is so important, because he says over in a variety of places, we looked at one in the Sermon on the Mount this morning, but in Mark chapter 11, 25, Jesus says this, And when you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive them, so that your Father in heaven may forgive you your sins. So what we see is that our forgiveness of other people is actually commanded. It's not coerced, but it's commanded. There are numerous places in Scripture where Jesus says forgiveness becomes a new way of life. A person who has been forgiven and understands forgiveness deep in the heart will forgive other people deeply from the heart. I'll say it again. A person who understands forgiveness deeply in her heart will forgive other people deeply from her heart. And that's what this parable is about. It's about the forgiveness of other people. And Jesus gives this parable to help us to understand the necessity of it. Now, I know some of us, when we read this, it's like, so are are you saying, is this passage saying that this is the one work we have to do to be saved? That I have to forgive other people or I won't be saved? Well, for a second, you need to put yourself in the mindset of the Old Testament, right? So uh, every year, every day, they had this thing in the middle of Jerusalem called the temple. And the temple was a picture of God's forgiveness, because right? you, brought, you brought your sacrifices to the temple, hands were laid upon it, symbolizing sin placed upon a sacrifice, and then the sacrifice is killed in your place, and your sins are forgiven. That's the image. So they're seeing this image for years and years and centuries, right? This image of God's forgiveness. And Jesus is saying, look, if you don't forgive your brother, you don't really understand this image. You don't really get what's been communicated to you for, thou- for hundreds of years, for a thousand years, that your sins are taken by another, your debts are put- paid by another. You don't really understand this. But now that Jesus has showed up in this passage, he's saying something's about to change because you're going to see a once-for-all forgiveness of all of your debt in God giving himself for you. So what Jesus is actually saying is, is this, is the point is not that forgiveness is the one work we have to do to be saved. 
The point is that forgiveness is the impossible work that we only want to do if we are saved. Did you catch that? The point is not that forgiveness is the one work we have to do to be saved. The point is that forgiveness is the impossible work that we only want to do if we are saved. So what does that mean? Forgiveness doesn't ignore what's wrong. This is from Dave Pallison. Forgiveness does not ignore what is wrong. It does not excuse what's wrong. It does not pretend that the person didn't really mean it. Instead, recognizing that a debt is owed, it forgives the debt. How about this? To forgive another is to cancel the debt of sin that is owed to you, demanding nothing in payment and setting the person completely free by not holding the offense against them anymore. You don't retaliate. You don't seek your own form of justice against that person or vengeance upon him. You don't try to hurt them as much as they've hurt you. You don't try the case in the court of public opinion and tell everybody how awful that person is. You don't seek in a passive aggressive or even in a subversive aggressive way to try to undermine or hurt that person. You forgive, you release the person, you don't hold it against, and you move towards reconciliation. And that's the point of forgiveness, is the reconciliation. 2 Corinthians 5.19 says, In Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against him. That's, God, that's why God forgives us. It's not so that we can get out of hell, but so our relationship with him can be restored. It can be reconciled. And that's the reason we're called to forgive other people, is so that the relationship can be reconciled. Now, culturally, we make forgiveness out to be about mental health. It's a mental health issue. Right? And there's actually some, some really good worldly wisdom in that. Because I've experienced this and you've experienced this. When you're carrying around anger and unforgiveness in your heart, right? you find yourself growing sullen and angry and cynical and bitter. And you find your, your anger level at a, a, at a threshold all the time. So you snap at people that don't really deserve it. Right? Some of us have crept into depression because of unforgiveness that we've harbored in our hearts. So there's some worldly wisdom in this. It's true, right? Here's an example, though. It says, uh, forgiveness is you being brave enough to remove from the one who hurt you the power to hold you hostage. You deserve to be the free, wise, and beautiful person God created you to be, right? So culturally, forgiveness is about me being released from this person. This person has nothing more that can say that can hurt me because I, this person doesn't matter and what they have done doesn't matter. And that's actually in some ways the opposite of biblical forgiveness because biblical forgiveness says to the person, you matter to me. It's not that you don't matter to me, you matter to me. So I'm going to forgive this so that we can be reconciled and restored in our relationship. And, and that's what he's talking about here. But then we come up with this case, and this is, this is a reality. What if the other person that I'm trying to be reconciled to doesn't admit their fault or their offense? What if, they, what if they, when I try to go to them, they, they push back and they attack back and they try to blame me or whatever it is they do? Well, the, the goal, Jesus says, is reconciliation. But Jesus acknowledges that this is a two-way street. It's a two-way street, right? Um, right now, culturally, we're having a conversation about abuse, aren't we? We talk about spiritual abuse. We talk about physical abuse. We talk about child abuse. We talk about elder abuse. We talk about all sorts of things. It's abuse. People get hurt by other people. And, uh, 
as we t- uh, and what we see in this passage is that Jesus was on top of this topic long before Sigmund Freud said the word uh, psychoanalysis. You know, Jesus talked about the necessity of the offending person admitting and confessing and repenting and making amends. And he talked about this in this chapter. Before he talks about forgiveness here, he's already talked about what to do when your brother sins against you. And so in Matthew 18, verses 15 to 20, we're not going to go into this in depth, but just touch on it. Jesus says, if, you, if your brother sins against you, go and show him his fault. If he repents, you've won your brother, right? You're reconciled. That's fantastic. That's what we want. But then he also acknowledges, and I love the pastoral balance of the Bible here, Jesus acknowledges that there are people who have a kind of a, a malignant quality about them, preventing reconciliation with that person. Some people are abusive, and they willingly and intentionally hurt other people. And you can't be reconciled to someone like that. If you go and show that person their fault, just the two of you, he won't listen. If you take along two or three others along with you, he won't listen. If you take along the church and and a group of people with you, he still won't listen. Because there's, there's something in his heart that can't admit the fault. A wicked person, biblically, will not acknowledge wrongdoing and change and sadly, we have to put distance between them and us personally and spatially. If there's physical abuse that's taking place, get out. And you counsel people, they get out. Because uh, the Bible never says that's more moral to stay in a kind of abusive relationship with like, like that. Our goal is to pursue repentance and restitution and reconciliation until it becomes clear that the other has no such desire. Now, what he's talking about here in this passage is not this kind of persistent abuse. What Jesus is talking about here is a brother or a sister, someone who, when their sin is pointed out, or maybe they just recognize it on their own, they are cut to the heart. They melt, and they feel such remorse and such grief, and they really want to be restored. They want to make amends. They want to, be, to have that relationship back the way that it was, and they acknowledge, I have been at fault here. And Jesus says, if that person comes to you, forgive that person and move towards reconciliation. But even that feels impossible, doesn't it? It feels so hard. This is a quote from somebody I was talking about forgiving another person. She said, I let her off the hook. I let her off once to start and felt pretty good about myself until someone brought up her name at lunch. And then I got mad all over again, which threw me for a loop. I forgave her. Why am I still so mad at her? Forgiveness is both a decision and a process. It's hard enough to choose to forgive in the first place. And then we have to do it again and again and again and again. That's kind of Peter's question, right? How many times in a day should I forgive my brother? Up to seven times? No, up to 77 times is what Jesus is saying. So we may want to, but we find that we can't, and it feels uh, a little bit impossible. So here's the beautiful thing about this passage, is he's not only telling us to do this, he's saying buried in this passage are the seeds of how we were able to do this, the power to be able to do the impossible of forgiving others. So Matthew 18, 32 to 33, Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me, and should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant, as I had mercy on you. And then in verse 1835, he says, So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you 
if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. So Jesus is letting us know it's not an option. We're called to do this. So where does that power come from? It tells us in verse 32, I forgave you all that debt. He also says, should you not have had mercy on him the way that I had, I had mercy on you. When it comes to this other person who has wronged him, the reason given is his own relationship with the king. Not this person's relationship, but your relationship with the king. That's where the power comes from, to be able to forgive the other person who has wronged you. He's, and, and we see this is pulled through the whole of the New Testament. In Ephesians chapter 4, Paul is talking about forgiveness, and he says, forgive one another, just as in Christ, God forgave you. That's where the power comes from, is seeing how much we've been forgiven. Have mercy on your brother as I've had mercy on you. So if you have short-lived forgiveness, it's because you have other motivations than Jesus. Right? Sometimes we just say, I need to be the kind of person who's more forgiving. Go ahead, try that. It's not going to work. You know what you'll become? A quietly resentful person. Right? You won't be honest with yourself about the grudge that you're carrying around. And you'll just carry around the, the guilt of it. And so this is why he says, you have to forgive from your heart, the core of you, right at the very center of you. That's where the forgiveness has to have, take place. So the gospel of Jesus enables us not just to forgive, but to be forgiving as an attitude of the heart. If you have any inkling of your own debt and guilt before God and any inkling of how much he's forgiven you, and the cost he had to pay to pardon you, uh, then quite overwhelmed, your heart will begin to melt and to say, how can I hold a sin against somebody else when I've been forgiven so much? At the heart of the kingdom of God is a forgiving God who transforms us into a forgiving kingdom. When Jesus was being crucified, he was praying for his tormentors. Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. He was praying, a forgiving king, a forgiving kingdom, to be like him. Now, you may say, well, but the person who, you don't know, that person hated me and hurt me intentionally. And Jesus says, yes, but you have one who is greater, who loved you and died for you intentionally. He gave himself for you and to you intentionally. And that has to be the motivation for forgiving. It's forgiving other people in him. So let me give you four, four quick things and then a story to kind of help you process all of this. Uh, so how does Jesus do this? The first way is uh, you recognize Jesus is enough. Jesus is enough for me. He's, he is the treasure hidden in the field. I, if, I can lose everything, but if I still have him, then I can part with those things without being incredibly bitter and angry. I can feel the loss. I can feel sad about it, but I don't have to rage and anger because one, I couldn't keep those things anyway. And number two, they never belonged to me to begin with. They belonged to him. So whatever I'm losing, it's not really mine to begin with. And number three, in Jesus, I have treasures kept in heaven for me that can never perish, spoil, or fade. So whatever I lose here, I'm going to get back there, right? As long as I have this, I can forgive anything because it's a loss, but it's not an ultimate loss. Imagine for just a moment that your, your domicile, your, your house is on fire, and there's one thing you can rescue in there. Some of you are thinking, well, it's my ADCD collection. 
I kept them all these years in the garage, and here they are going up. And do any of you even have CDs anymore? I don't know. I have a couple hidden in my glove compartment. Um, some of you would probably say it's, it's the pictures. It's the pictures from all those years. And it's like, well, we've got the cloud now. It's okay. You're going to get those back. Um, hopefully, you'd say my grandchildren. <laughs> my, my children, my grandchildren, as long as they're safe, the house can burn, and we're going to be okay. Right? That's my treasure. What he's telling us here is you have a treasure kept in heaven. You have Jesus. You have him. You have all that comes in him. You can lose anything here, and you'll get it back. Right? There. Second, identity. You identify with the offender. He says, have mercy on your brother as I have had mercy on you. In other words, you're just like that person. You have an offense against another person, and it's not nearly as great. That's a $10 trillion debt. The denarii is maybe, you know, the amount that he owed him was maybe a thousand bucks, right? But your debt was bigger. So he's telling here, how can you get mad at someone when they're, you're doing the exact same thing and guilty of the same things? Um, my wife will let you, she, she will tell you this. We, I've used this illustration before, so you don't, I'm not ratting her out and anything here. Uh, she loses her keys and her phone all the time. So we'll be sitting somewhere, and Rebecca's got to go somewhere, and she'll say, can you call my phone? Because she needs for it to ring so she can remember where it is in the cushion on a chair in a, in a bedroom or something. And uh, so she's wandering to the house trying to get her phone. And now the thing is, I don't get angry with her with that. Because I've lost things before that have cost us a lot of money. That's on me, right? So I can't look at her and say, can't you ever keep up with your phone? What's wrong with you? And it's like, well, what did you do with that check? Oh, yeah. Yeah. So I can't hold against her something I've done myself. And this is the point. Is when you see another person who has wronged you, well, you forgive just as in Christ you've been forgiven. Third, uh, pity. Pity for the person. He says you have mercy on this person because you see where they would be heading. And uh, this is why things like support groups and others work is because when you see another person who's been through something you've been through, your heart goes out to them. I've been through that. Absolutely. And so you show them grace and you show them mercy because you show them pity because they've been through, you're going through what you've been through. And this is the beautiful thing about it too is the pity for the person means uh, it, it comes from this is to love someone who has sinned against you and to show that person mercy is very Christ-like because that's what Christ did and to be Christ-like doesn't necessarily mean you become more moral it means you become more forgiving and kind and compassionate towards broken people including people who have wronged you and then the last is a, a just a, a word of grace on this is a it's hard to forgive people, particularly depending on what it is that they've done to you. And you're just like this example that this uh, lady gave us is you forgive them one day and then lying in bed 3 o'clock in the morning, you didn't ask for it. All of a sudden, all the thoughts come in and replay that argument, what you wish you had said, what they said, and you start replaying it over in your mind. It's like, I forgave that person. I tried to let that go. Why, why is it still playing itself out in my mind? It's because you're human and you're sinful and there's not really an antidote pill you can take, right? It's a little bit more like an accident. It takes a while to get over it emotionally. There's trauma. There's physical stuff. There's emotional stuff. There's, there's a lot more that's going on than just simply saying, hey, I want to forgive them. God acknowledges that, 
and there's grace for you in the struggle. He's, not ta- he's talking about the person here who says, I will never, ever forgive that person because you're passing judgment and taking the place of God. But if you're someone who's saying, Lord, I want to forgive this person. I'm struggling to do it. Please help me. That's going to the right source of saying, I have to go to Jesus to find the power and the motivation for this kind of forgiveness. Now, let me show you how this works. Rebecca and I have uh, friends uh, roughly around our age, with kids around the same age as ours. And uh, it's been probably 10 or 15 years ago now, uh, his prescription drug addiction uh, was found out. And the way it was found out were the number of credit cards that he had had in his name and the amount of debt that he had run up during that time period. $30,000 in debt for these prescription drugs. And so his wife found out. He did the books. He did the checkbook, all this. He paid all the bills, so she had no idea, and she could completely caught her off guard. And when this happened, um, she was angry, and she was upset, and she felt lied to, and she wondered, can I trust this person anymore? But that wasn't the extent of it. She'd been saving up money for years. Like in her, her, since college, she'd been saving money for that dream trip to Europe with her best friend. And she's looking at this pot of money. And all of that money went to pay for his debt. Then he had to go into rehab. And so she's at home with their three little kids. And she's having to take care of them while he's off in rehab. And she did something she hadn't done in a long time. She had to take a job to be able to provide for their finances, for their home and everything. So it cost her a great deal to be able to forgive the man that she married. That was hard. They're still married. They just celebrated an anniversary, and she wrote this for her anniversary. Enduring love sees you at your worst and loves you there. It forgives. A love that bears all things is not a natural love. It's a supernatural love, and it can only come from God above. They're doing great. They had a lot they had to work through and still do. Um, but they're doing great. A person who understands God's love and forgiveness deeply in the heart forgives other people deeply from the heart. Let's pray.